What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. Music has been called medicine for the soul. Music is like a language that unifies cultures all over the globe. And sometimes songwriters will write a song that bring us a little close together. Now, some of them are Christian, and some of them are not Christian. And there's a song that has been called the Secular Hymn, that you can go all over the world, no matter which continent you arrive on, and if you start singing the chorus to the song, or some of the verses, everybody, generally, will be able to join in in song. And the name of that song is called Hallelujah. And it was written by a Canadian singer-songwriter by the name of Leonard Cohen. In fact... He wrote 80 stanzas to that song in one writing session on the floor at at the Royalton Hotel in New York City in his underwear while banging his head on the ground. (laughs) So if you want to write a hit song, go to a fancy hotel, sit in the floor in your underwear, and bang your head on the ground. This song was originally released in 1984 on his album, Various Positions, and initially it achieved very little success. And it wasn't until 1991 when John Cale recorded it that it began to receive attraction. And then Jeff Buckley heard that and, and recorded it in 1994, and it began to become a little more popularized in our culture and over the globe. But it wasn't until 2001 when a movie was released called Shrek, that featured that song when it was really popular. And then, now, there's over 300 versions of this song. And after Cohen's death in November 2016, for the very first time, it appeared on the American Billboard Hot 100 chart. Today, as we think about this secular hymn that literally has unified cultures just by singing that chorus. Today, my friends, we're we're not here to study about a secular hymn called Hallelujah. Today, my friends, we're here to study the heavenly hymn of heaven. And it's one word, Hallelujah. Today, I have a one-word message for you, Hallelujah. Would you say that with me? Hallelujah. If you're glad Jesus is on the throne, say Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yes. Today I want to share with you, um, my sermon title is simply Hallelujah. But if I could elaborate that thought, and if I could summarize everything that I'm about to share with you with one simple statement, here is the takeaway thought that I want us to understand. But before I share this with you, I want you to keep in mind, from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 18, we have literally been reading about the judgment and righteous indignation of God that He is going to thunder down upon an unbelieving, Christ-rejecting world in the age to come. And so today, I commend you for still being here throughout the journey of the future judgment of God. But today, we see that that judgment has passed. 
in the future. And now we're seeing John fixing his gaze upon heaven and what it's going to be like in eternity. And in these first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 19, yes, we know this chapter is about the second coming. But before we get to the second coming, here in these 10 verses, we see all of heaven erupting in one song. Hallelujah. And so today, the takeaway thought is this. In heaven, we will forever sing endless hallelujahs to our King. In heaven, we will forever sing endless hallelujahs to our King. I thought it was very interesting as I was studying this passage, the word hallelujah in the New Testament is only mentioned four times. And guess where it happens to be mentioned? In our text today, four simple times. In fact, as I begin to study further this word hallelujah, we see that it is a transliteration from the Hebrew language into the Greek language and into the English language. So when we are saying hallelujah, we're literally saying all praise to Jehovah God or Yahweh. That is what hallelujah means. And so today, as we come here, we see that all of heaven is erupting with one word, hallelujah, that literally means praise Yahweh, or praise Jehovah God. Now, as we look to the future here, I think we need to ask ourselves a question. Yes, we know that in heaven we will sing hallelujah to our king, but can we begin to prepare now, today, to sing hallelujah right now on this side? Yes, we can sing hallelujah. So I believe that this chapter, or at least this section of the chapter, is going to give us three different areas of how we can worship God before we get to heaven, singing this hallelujah. And in fact, I want to draw your attention to three key words in our text today. It's going to be the word praise, the word honor, and the word worship. Would you say those words with me? Praise, honor, and worship. Say it again. Praise, honor, and worship. Today, that is what the theme of this chapter is. It's that we are going to give God glory, honor, praise, and worship, not just in our lives today, but in the age to come, because we know that finally, once and for all, the, the great whore of Babylon, the system that's going to arise and take dominion over the world and conquer and conquer and kill God's people is going to be overthrown. So today, I want to draw your attention to verses 1 and 5 and share the first thought with you today about the word praise. As I read these first five verses, here's the first thought of how can we prepare to sing endless hallelujahs to our king today. Number one, let us praise our God for his gift of salvation. Let us praise our God for his gift of salvation. Yes, I know that we're going to be praising God about salvation and deliverance over this great whore of Babylon in heaven, but we can also join in the hallelujah of heaven about praising our God because not only did he overcome the Antichrist and his kingdom, but 2,000 years ago, our God overcame death, hell, and the grave by dying on the cross and being resurrected from the grave. And so in verse number one, we see that John again fixes his focus onto another scene in his vision. Remember, he was on the island of Patmos around 95 AD receiving this magnificent vision called the apocalypse or revelation. And here the first words he sees or he hears by this great angelic choir, if you will, in heaven. It says hallelujah or hallelujah. And then it says salvation. Say that word with me. Salvation. This literally means to be delivered over something. It means to be rescued from a time of trial. 
And yes, I know that we're in a time of trial in in our current age, but the greatest trial that any human being has ever experienced is the trial that we call sin. And Jesus, 2,000 years ago, hung on Calvary's cross and overcame the trial of sin so that we could overcome through him. And my friends, today, as we think about this scene in heaven, the Bible says salvation and glory and honor and power belongs to the Lord our God. As I read verse 1, I thought about this. Salvation is only obtained through Jesus Christ. Salvation is only obtained through Jesus Christ. I know that there's a unique philosophy that has arisen up in the last 50 years, give or take, and it's the thought of relativism. That is, whatever is true to you may not be true to me. But understand me clearly today. That scripture declares dogmatically that Jesus is the only way to heaven. In fact, Jesus said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus said, if you try to climb up to heaven by any other way, the same is a thief and a robber. In fact, Peter, when he was preaching his sermon in the book of Acts, he said that salvation is only found in Jesus' name, and he's the only name whereby we can be saved. My friends, we live in a crazy culture that is always rapidly changing. But even in the midst of a changing culture, we see that salvation, at least the manner in which salvation can be received, has never changed. It's through Jesus. It's through Christ alone, grace alone, and faith alone. And as I read verse 2, And really, verse 3 and 4, it speaks about how the judgments of God or his word are righteous and true. It speaks about how he has judged this system called Babylon, the great whore, that did corrupt or pollute the world with her spiritual adulteries or her fornication. And that, that God has avenged the blood of all of his saints that were upon her hands. Verse 3, it says, and again, they begin to shout and say, hallelujah. And the Bible says her smoke rose up forever and ever. This, I believe, just signifies that the destruction of this system is over and it will never have to plague humanity again. In fact, all the way back to Genesis chapter number 10 in the Tower of Babel, we see that the spirit of Babylon has been alive on this world and it's alive today, even in our culture of America. But one day, give God praise, give God glory, it will come to an end. And that's why they're declaring hallelujah. But then it says, these four and twenty elders that goes back to Revelation 4 and 5 and the four living beasts, these creatures of heaven fall down and they begin to worship God who's on the throne by saying amen and hallelujah. Salvation, my friends, I, I thought about this as I read these verses. Salvation is only discovered in the word of Christ. In fact, Paul the Apostle, when he's writing that great esteemed letter to the Roman church, he said, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Yes, we believe that salvation is exclusively through Jesus Christ alone. And the only way you can hear that message is when somebody stands up and proclaims the good word of God. You see, the Bible is the greatest book of all time because it features the greatest figure of all time the Son of God, 
In fact, the entirety of God's word from Genesis to Malachi and from Matthew to Revelation, every letter, every book, every section is all about Jesus Christ. It's all pointing to the redemption of Christ for his church and the sinful human being. So as we think about how God's word is so important, I wonder. Yes, we believe it's important as a church. But my question for you is, is it important for you in your life? Does it just sit on your shelf and collect dust? Or do you devour it each and every day and allow God's word to speak to you? Because listen, if you're not in God's word, then God is not speaking to you. And if you're not going to hear Bible preaching, God is not going to be speaking through the servant to you. Have you discovered the salvation found in Christ? But now check it out now in verse 5. It says, And a voice came out of the throne. A lot of debate about who this voice is. And when we get to heaven, we'll figure it out then. But it says that this voice said, and most likely this is not God speaking because it's referencing God. So we don't know exactly. But it says, Praise our God, all ye his saints, and ye that fear him both small and great. There's our key word for this first section, praise. Let us praise our God for his gift of salvation. Yes, he delivers these people in the tribulation period over this system, but my friends, notice the Bible says in the Gospel of John that, that in this world we will have troubles and we will have trials and we will have tribulations, but be not overcome with the world because greater is he that is in you than he that's in me. Our God is able to overcome all these different things. And as I read verse 5, I think about this. Salvation is only honored in the worship of Christ. Salvation is only honored in the worship of Christ. Let's praise Him. Let's worship Him. Let's glorify Him. Let's honor Him. Not just in the age to come in heaven, but right now here on this earth today. In heaven, we will forever sing endless hallelujahs to our King. Will you look at verses Six through eight with me. Secondly today, how can we prepare to sing endless hallelujahs to our king today? Well, secondly, in these next three verses, I want to share this thought with you. Let us glorify our God for his great marriage celebration. Let us glorify our God for his great marriage celebration. Did you know that the average wedding in Virginia cost $33,300. Just to give you an idea of what it would be like for a parent to save that amount of money, let's say you have a child, and for the next 20 years of that child's life, you would have to save $140 a month to be able to pay for the average wedding in the state of Virginia. You say, well, I just don't believe that. That's not true. Well, just Google it. It is true. The, the average venue is going to cost you somewhere between twelve dollars to $14,000. The average engagement ring is going to cost you $4,700 to $5,600. The average photographer is going to cost you $2,000. The average videographer is going to cost you $1,800. The dress is going to cost you $1,600. Catering is going to cost you somewhere between $1,800 and $7K. Just depends on how elaborate you want your food to be at your wedding celebration. And that estimates about $24,000 to $32,000. 
$1,000. Now, if that doesn't rock your cradle any, just think about this. Just think about this. The vast majority of marriages, tragically, will result in a separation. And so imagine, let's say you decide to get remarried. So again, you're going to pay another $33,000. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. <laughs> it's crazy. Or more. Actually, the, this is a side note. Some of the uh, couples that I've been involved with for a second marriage, they make it very, very light. <laughs> it's just me and them at the marriage altar. But I, I share all that with you to just let you know that, that our whole idea of marriage and weddings is totally foreign to John's mind as he's writing these words here. It was totally foreign to the ancient church and literally the Jewish mind of the Old Testament. You see, I believe that in verse 6, 7, and 8 that John has in mind the Jewish custom of wedding. Now, in our culture, we know we have the engagement season, we have the wedding and we have the reception. And that is kind of featured in the Jewish tradition. But you have the first phase. There's three phases in a Jewish wedding. You have the betrothal, the betrothal phase, where it's kind of like a long extended engagement. Then you have the presentation, or kind of like the wedding ceremony. Then you have the banquet, or it's like a week-long feast. But understand this, that in the betrothal area, that is kind of like the engagement season, that was done before that child generally was ever born. So in John's mind, in the ancient church mind, in the Jewish mind, marriages were generally speaking arranged. That is, fathers and mothers would find a family that they would want their children to be engaged with, and that's how they would do marriage. And that is how marriage was done for century after century after century, until the Western mindset came in. And so maybe, just maybe, we see that the shift in marriage, the shift in dating, the shift in relationships is the reason why there's a lack of loyalty and commitment in most marriages today. But I say all that to, to just simply say this, that, that the Jewish wedding was to typify Christ's relationship with his church. And so just as you'd have that first engagement scene, we see that Jesus came and he paid. They would have to pay a dowry or they would give a piece of property in exchange for that covenantal contract of that partnership and marriage in the days to come in their children's life. That Jesus 2,000 years ago paid that price on the cross with his blood. And now he's in heaven preparing. And then we see that when the church is raptured up and we, we understand, I know there's debate about it, but we understand that, it, that, that, that it's a pre-trib view and that that is when that presentation of the bride is going to take place in heaven during the tribulation period. And then when, they, when Christ returns, the church is going to come back with him. And then in the millennium, we are going to see the wedding celebration or the feast take place or the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the guests that are, that are invited, as we'll see, is Israel. Or at least that's how I have come to land. But look at verse number six. In verse number six, we understand this. The marriage celebration reminds us to glorify the powerful God. You see, it is God who orchestrates his will on this earth. And 
And let's just think about this, that when you met your spouse or you met your husband or you met your wife, it was God connecting those dots into your life so that you would cross paths. God is the powerful God. And here we see that a, that, 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 that a huge multitude in heaven is praising God. It's, it's as if he's hearing the Niagara Falls and great thunderings and, and, and all these different things in heaven. And he hears, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Sounds like Handel's Messiah because it's where part of his song was quoted from right here. He is the all-powerful God. He's orchestrating it all out. He can, by the way, fix a marriage that is broken. He can restore relationships that need to be mended. God is able to work the impossible because he's the all-powerful God. But then in verse number seven, we see that the marriage celebration reminds us to glorify the powerful God. But in verse seven, it reminds us to rejoice in the Lamb of God. Look at this. It says, let us be glad and rejoice. Here's a command, a heavenly command that John is relaying to us. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. Now say the word honor with me. Honor. Say it again, please. Honor. This word honor, it literally means glorious honor. This is the same exact word that's translated other times in the King James as glory. And we understand that this word honor is the word we get doxology from. So here we see that we are called to glorify our God for his great marriage celebration. Now here's the beauty. Here's the beautiful thing. Is there's nothing in you or in me that God even seems full of worthiness to allow us to be engaged in this type of relationship with him. And that leads us to verse 8. You see, right now, by the way, in verse number 7, it speaks about how the wife or the bride, that is the church, is making herself ready as of right now. That is the whole point of all we're doing. We, we serve God so that we can make ourselves more presentable in his eyes. But then in verse number 8, it says, it says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. Why do we have fancy attire for weddings? Well, because... Here it is. This is one of the reasons probably that we understand this. It was a day of celebration. It was just not like a walk in the park. This was a special day. And in the ancient culture mind, it was a special week. And it's sometimes an extended period of, of, of time where they would celebrate. And here, they would bring out their best attire for this magnificent, glorious occasion. Did you know the greatest social event throughout the world is a wedding? It is the greatest social event ever. And the reason why I believe it's so great is because marriage is not only speaking to us about, about this future event in the age to come, but it reminds us in Ephesians 5 about how a husband is to love his wife as Christ has loved the church. That is sacrificial love. That is selfless love. Husbands, that is your calling as a husband. And then the wife is called to submit to the leadership doesn't mean that the husband's going to be a dictator, but that she recognizes that he's the leader and he's going to be held accountable for everything in that household. And so she submits and supports and encourages her husband. That's what a marriage is supposed to symbolize. It is supposed to symbolize Jesus and the gospel so that when people look into your life, they see a picture of God's benevolent Charitable love through your marriage. And surely there's times where marriages fail and God will graciously 
give people a second or even sometimes a third attempt at it. And that is all the grace of God, my friends. And so today, as we look at this section of Scripture, we need to understand that, that it's all grace that we're involved in this whole occasion. As I read verse 8, I think about the marriage celebration reminds us to live righteously before God. That we are called to live holy lives. That when we sin, we confess it. That when, when we stumble, we get back up and we keep pressing forward. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, it's interesting, it says about these, the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And we know that Isaiah said that my righteousness is filthy rags in the sight of God. This is the grace of God. God is going to see the good deeds that the church as a whole has accomplished in these 2,000 some years until Christ comes again. He's going to see that, that all of these great things that God did through the church is going to be arrayed on his bride at this celebration. Let us glorify our God for his great marriage celebration. Let us praise our God for his gift of salvation. My friends, in heaven, we will forever sing endless hallelujahs to our king. But may I share with you a third thought today from verses 9 and 10? As we think about how can we prepare to sing endless hallelujahs to our king today, yes, we know we've got to praise him. Yes, we know we've got to glorify him. But now we need to understand we have to worship him. Thirdly today, let us worship our God for his gracious invitation. Let us worship our God for his gracious invitation. Verse number 9 and 10. As we come to this passage, let us understand that, that in God's ways that I don't fully understand, he chose the people of Israel to be his people. And now he has chosen his church to be his people, to accomplish his will on this earth. And because of the hardness of the Israelites' heart and their refusal to exclusively worship Christ only and, and him alone, or Jehovah alone, who we know would later be named Christ, that because of that and the hardness of their heart for century after century and generation after generation, God put them away and set them aside. And he has allowed us to step in. And here in verse number nine, the first part, we see that we can worship God for the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That, I mean, imagine, imagine if your spouse committed adultery against you. Would you invite them to a feast at your house as if nothing ever happened? Well, in a sense, it's kind of like what God is going to allow the Israelites to do. And I say that respectfully. In verse number 9, it says, he said, that this angel is speaking to him and says, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. That, my friends, is the grace of God. That when, when we were backslidden and we were wayward and, and running away just like Israel, God is allowing us to partake in this whole thing. And then he's allowing Israel, the stiff-necked Israel, the picture of Hosea and his wife, who is kind of like Rahab. He's allowing Israel to come and celebrate 
That's the grace of God. Then the second part of this verse, verse 9, it's, I thought about this. Worship God for the invitation to hear the word of the Lamb. Not only can we, see, we're going to get to visualize the grace of God in wayward Israel, but we're going to hear his word. And it says, he saith unto me, now, now listen to this. This is the word of God. It says, these are the true sayings of God. Now we believe this is an angelic being speaking. And so what he is doing is he is affirming to us today that the word of God, when the word of God is being read and spoken, and when somebody is speaking and declaring God's word, they are literally speaking on behalf of God. And so this right here, verse number nine, it's a promise that God is going to fulfill. And that's why, my friends, we interpret scripture in a way that's not to throw aside all of Israel because God is not finished with them yet. Yes, he set them aside as Romans 9, 10, 11 speak about, but also that section speak about how God is going to bring it all back just like it is right here. And then verse 11, or excuse me, verse 10, I thought about this, worship God for the invitation to tell others about the Lamb. In verse 10, we see John makes a, probably a mistake that we would make too. When we're hearing all the shouts of hallelujah and the praise in heaven and seeing all these angelic beings arrayed in, in, in bright colors because they're in the presence of God and just giving off the, the, the presence of God on them because God's presence shined on them and now it's shining on others. And so he falls down and tries to worship this angelic being. But the angelic being responded and said, see, thou do it not. He says, don't do it. He says, I am your fellow servant and your, and your fellow brother that has the testimony of Christ. He says, worship God. This word worship, it literally means if you could go back to the time when John is writing this, you know, you had Caesar, you had Nero, you had Domitian, all these Roman leaders, and, and they would bow their knee and give homage to the king. And they would bow down like this. And in other words, they would bow down and give that king and Caesar full honor and worship. And so this gives the idea that the only one we bow down to and worship is the one who's seated on the heavenly throne, and that is Almighty God, the triune, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, sovereign God. And he says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words... All of the prophetic writings of the Old Testament lead us up to this moment in future history. And when we stand up and we declare God's word, we are in a sense like the prophets of old, declaring scripture even though it's written down for us. And we are called, all of us, not just me, not just Brother Chamberlain and his family in New Hampshire and Concord, but we are all called to share and invite people to come to faith in Christ. You know, as I was meditating in this chapter, I thought to myself, I wonder what was the largest attended wedding in all of history. Well, it was actually a royal wedding back in 2018. Prince Harry. Did you watch that one on TV? I only got to see a glimpse of it on TV because I was visiting somebody in the hospital to go pray with them and encourage them. And they were watching. They were glued to that TV that day. So it was better off for me not even to be there. But anyways, um, uh, he married a, an American actress and on May 19, 2018, at the Windsor Castle, they, they moved it on a Saturday. And tradition, traditionally, they would have these royal weddings during the week. But because they moved it on a Saturday, about 1.9 billion people across the world watched that wedding. 
They streamed it on national television. In America, it's reported that 28 million people were watching the wedding. In the United Kingdom, uh, um, you know, uh, excuse me, in the United Kingdom, and an additional 29 million in the United States. And the ceremony was covered on CNN, BBC One, Sky News, ITV, and E, and also online on YouTube and wherever else you could find it. 1.9 billion people. That's like one-fourth of the entire population of the world. Could you imagine that many people watching or attending your wedding? (laughs) That's insane to think about. But now think about this. 1.9 billion people will not compare to the amount of beings that will be present at this celebration that we read about in Revelation 19. I'm telling you, if you think that that Prince Harry and his uh, wedding ceremony was something special, it's nothing compared to the special celebration that God is going to unleash in the age to come. And my friends, that's why we can shout with every fervor in our being, hallelujah. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.